<clears throat> so great to be continuing this wonderful book, the last book of the Old Testament, God's last word to his people for 400 plus years. As we saw last week, this is what, they, what is called a post-exilic book from a Hebrew post-exilic prophet named Malachi, not an Italian prophet named Malachi. Possibly the most lame preaching joke of all time, but it never fails to get a couple of laughs. But Malachi simply means my messenger. Malachi is the Hebrew word Moloch, which is angel or messenger, and the I at the end is the first person suffix. So what we have, in fact, then is I or my messenger. And it's quite possible that there never was a prophet named Malachi, that this is God's messenger without a name, my messenger. But it really doesn't matter if Malachi was a prophet or this is, this is an unknown prophet preaching this book. It, we can't be 100% sure, but either way, uh, we know this, that this preacher, Malachi, has a huge burden. We saw last week, didn't we, that this is an oracle from the Lord, and that oracle means burden. It's a burden. And when, we, and when we look at how Malachi preaches, who would want to preach that? It's a burden, but he has to get it out. It's burning in this man's chest. He must get it out. And what we have in the book of, of Malachi is simply, in four chapters, six arguments or disputations that Malachi is having with the people of Israel. The entire book is those six disputations. We saw last week, didn't we, disputation number one or argument number one was, how do you love me? And God says, I loved you by electing you. And he answers that question with electing love in disputation number one. Number two today it is an argument about worship. God not liking, not allowing, not... not uh, uh, accepting the worship of Israel, and the disputation is over what worship is. Next week, we'll see the third disputation, or perhaps the week following, uh, when the, the issue that Malachi has with the Israelites is over how they do and how they practice divorce. And then the last three are not necessarily laws broken, but the last three disputations are arguments about God's justice, Israel's lack of good works, and finally, the coming judgment of the Lord is the last disputation. And as we saw at the beginning of Sunday school this morning, this Old Testament book ends with a call of judgment to come in that day. And the entire book ends this way. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great, awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And here's how the Old Testament ends. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
That's the end of the Old Testament. So tonight we'll be looking at just this second argument or disputation between God and his people, and the disputation is on worship. Lots of interesting quotes tonight from some of our favorites, and in the usual text, we get an unusual expository topical sermon on worship. And we'll break the text down under two headings this morning in your notes. First, we'll see the Lord's name despised in worship in verses 6 through 10. And then finally, in verses 11 through 14, we'll see the Lord's assurance and promise that despite the failure and the despising of his name by his covenant people, his name will be both great and feared among the nations. So let's see first the Lord's name despised. Um, as we begin, I have to admit, <clears throat> I love the worship at Redeemer. I love it. But we have to acknowledge, and I hope we all will, that as far as worship, we have not yet arrived. Our order of worship is neither the poster child of Presbyterianism nor the poster child of the PCA. But I hope our hearts strive always to be pleasing to the Lord and continually reforming and making our worship better and more faithful to Christ. I trust Spurgeon speaks for us all when he says, quote, the best worship that we ever rendered to God is so far from perfect. Our praises, now faint and feeble, they are. Our prayers, how wondering, are wavering, and they always tend to do so. When we get nearest to God, how far from him are we really? When we are most like him, how greatly unlike him we are. Yet, it's through worship that we are never closer to him, nor he, us. Let's look at Israel's problems and how they start in verse 6. A son honors his father and servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priest who despise my name. The despising of the name of the Lord started with a dishonoring and a lack of fear of him. It also started not in the pews, but in the pulpits. And the pulpits, the priests in this case, are simply a product of the people's hearts and desires. And here comes the disputation. O priests who despise my name, and they respond. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice is not that evil. When you offer those that are lame or sick is not that evil. They knew what to do. They knew how worship was to be conducted. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter one lays out in detail the burnt sacrificial system. 
the lambs, the bulls, the sacrifices must be spotless and without blemish. It was very clear. What he had prescribed that for them, they just didn't do. They totally disregarded it. What they were doing was disregarding the regulative principle of worship. How God has deigned and how God says, I want to be worshiped, they said no. And we know why they offered these blemished animals. Certainly, sick animals are no good to them anyway. What is good is a blind animal to them. Now, let's just shift for a second to us. Do we ever do the same? Is our worship ever for our benefit? Do we ever come in with our hearts far from being true and honorable? How do we prepare for worship? Do we prepare for worship? Are our sacrifices blind, lame, or sick? Do we offer the Lord the best that we have? Now, it's interesting here in the text that the Lord himself uses the tried and true White House President of the United States argument. Look at the end of verse eight again. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is not that evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show any favor to you, says the Lord of hosts. This argument, the White House argument, is always used or many times used in the matter of how we dress for worship. So let's talk about dress for worship a minute. This is the argument. Would you wear, fill in the blank, whatever it is that you want to say, would you wear that to see the President of the United States? Then why would you wear less to worship the Lord of heaven. Let me just say this. I think if we're wearing whatever we're wearing to make a statement or to be seen, any statement, or to bring any attention to ourselves, whether we're wearing a $3,000 Armani suit and tie or dungarees and Birkenstocks, if we're wearing what we are wearing to make a statement, look at me, how well I'm dressed, or I don't have to dress up, look at me. If either of those is in our hearts, we need to think seriously about this passage. If you have a purpose, a statement to make with your dress, here's my recommendation. For the next six weeks, do the exact opposite. If you are proud of your suit that you must wear, wear something less suitful. And if you are wearing dungarees because you can, I suggest you wear a suit for the next six weeks. And if you are out there judging either of those, you need to repent too. 
It's fair game. So yes, what we wear matters to the Lord. Especially if you have a prideful or rebellious heart attached. But do you see Malachi's White House argument here? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord? His argument is God is not going to accept your willful disobedience any more, uh, I'm not going to accept your willful disobedience any more than the gov- governor is going to accept your disrespect of him. Now let's move on to one of the most sad verses in the entire Bible. Verse 10. Oh, the Lord says, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. Do you think the Lord ever says anything like that to any church today? Do you think he's ever thought that about our worship. He is saying, oh, would someone please just shut that door? Shut the door to that church so no one thinks this is actually me in there. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord. I will not accept an offering from your hand. You imagine the Lord saying that to us. We saw this this morning in Sunday school, those of you who are here. Lord, Lord, have we not? Depart from me, I never knew you. That's the Lord despised. Where can our messenger Malachi go from here? No wonder this is such a burden to him who would want to deliver such a message. But now the Lord never leaves us there, does he? He promises that despite the failure and the despising of his name by his covenant people, verse 11, his name will be both great and feared among the nations. Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense, I think prayer, will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. I will find a way. And just then, when we think maybe this will be the breakthrough Israel needs, Maybe this warning uh, will help them stop this profaning. Perhaps God will make his name known among the heathen, the Gentile, the nations. Perhaps this will break his people. We get another bombshell. Spurgeon again gets it when Israel cannot. Spurgeon says, depend on it, my hearer. No one will ever go to heaven unless they are prepared 
to worship Jesus Christ as God now. Amen. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, here's what they say. What a weariness this is. I'm sick of this. And you snort at it, says the Lord. The reaction here is what non-Trigsteads or Trigsteads by marriage know as the genie shush. And only when probably laughing is Lisa. She's smirking, not laughing. But this is the genie shush. She would say, if she were the people, what weariness this is. <laughs> she would have this, <laughs> this, this shush, and everybody knew what it was. It was the genie shush. It's described as a snort, so you really have to be a Hebrew scholar to understand the intricacies that the snort is really the shush. And you snort at it says the Lord of hosts. It's not only the offering, it's the attitude of entitlement and self-righteousness that's behind such nonsense. Now, as we go through this book, we'll see how full its hints are and the prophecies are of what is to come in 400 short years. And we end with one of them. I will be worshiped. You know, John Calvin said a lot of wonderful things, but this quote from his book, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, is simply one of his best. And it's hard, some, it's hard to wrap around this, and you have to really think about what he's saying. But this is what Calvin says. He says, if it be inquired then by what things chiefly the Christian religion is, He's saying, if you were to ask me or we were to look at what are really the most important things about the Christian religion, he says, it will be found in the following two that not only occupy the principal place, but comprehend under them all the other parts and consequently the whole substance of what Christianity is. Calvin says, Christianity boils down to two things. First, of the mode in which God is to be duly worshipped. The number one thing about what the Christian faith, Calvin says, is how God is to be rightly worshipped. Number two, and secondly, of the source from which salvation is to be sought and obtained. Calvin says the most important thing about Christianity is how we worship God. Number two, what must we do to be saved? But we were designed to worship our Lord. Verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The cheat will cheat. 
and vow and then continue offering the blemished sacrifices in a prophetic utterance we still rejoice in today. The Lord ends the passage and the chapter and the disputation by saying, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And he still is king and is still being feared. And as we close, just two quick applications, and you probably already know what they are. First, how is your worship? First and foremost, do you love the worship of God on Sunday morning? Do you live for it? Do you prepare for it? Do you think about it in anticipation during the week? When you're here, how do you sing? How do you listen to the word of God being preached? What changes do you need to make, if any? And finally, we have a tendency to ask ourselves, don't we, why such a big deal? A little blemish? And you are making that big of a deal out of it? It reminds me of that question that was asked R.C. Sproul at that now infamous Ligonier conference. You know, if God is so loving, why would he make such a big deal out of Eve just eating a bite of fruit off a tree? And R.C. says, what's wrong with you people? Do you not understand what sin is? And that's kind of the feeling we get. The sacrifice is going to be burned up anyway. Who cares if it's a little blind in one eye? Just burn it. Get it done. And I call you back, brothers and sisters, as we close back to where we started tonight in Hebrews chapter 9. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent to 12, he entered once for all into that holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more... Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. He was the lamb. The lamb was a picture of him without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. How much more without blemish to God purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. Behold, brothers and sisters, the spotless Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Let's pray together. Oh, our Father, such symbolism. Yet, it's the same sin that the people of Israel made by ignoring a regulative principle, which you've already laid down for them in the scriptures to worship. May we never do the same. May we also never take pride and arrogance and self-satisfaction in what we've deemed the right way to worship. For even if we had the perfect order of worship, with that attitude, he will not accept our sacrifice either. We love to worship you, Lord. Help us to worship in this place with spirit and truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.